Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and McLaren has won the race to be the first to launch its 2020 Formula 1 car, with the MCL 35M being revealed online on Monday. But just how new is it really, given the change of engine supply, and what should we expect from a team that's made huge strides in recent years? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to take a look at McLaren's new car are Gary Anderson and Scott Mitchell. Gary, I've got to come to you first, because you're, you're fuming at the moment. Yeah, I am a little bit. I mean, it was all advertisers being the a launch of the new McLaren Mercedes package. And uh, and basically, it was a bit of a, a shindig. Um, you know, there was nothing to do with the car there, to be honest. We saw very little of it. The car wasn't actually there. It was Silverstone. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's a bit disappointing because it's all about the team, the car, and the drivers. And that combination can get together and you can present quite a nice little detailed thing about your car and get the enthusiasm built up. You know, I don't care whether Dan, Daniel Ricciardo can play a, a tambourine or Lando Norris a triangle. I want to see them involved with the car and, you know, James Key, Andreas Siddle going around the car and, and talking about the thing because that's the tool that they have to use this year. Um, so, yeah, disappointed with it, to be honest. Surely, Scott, you're enjoying Daniel Ricciardo's rapping skills. <laughs> um, I actually enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed his rapping skills um, a bit more when we had a conversation with him. Um, a few hours before, sort of in anticipation of the of the launch, he joined a he joined a Zoom call and um, uh, just he started rapping at the start of the Zoom call, which that was actually uh, quite good and a bit less forced than what we saw in the the, the video. I, I much prefer I much prefer Daniel when he's sort of like just being a bit more authentically jolly, shall we say, rather than having sort of forced fun. <laughs> Nobody likes enforced fun. I tell you what, though, uh, Gary would have been absolutely fuming if he'd made the effort to go to uh, made the effort to go all the way to Paris last year for the uh, for the Renault launch that didn't have a car or even a full render of the 2020 car. That was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life: going to a car launch for something that didn't have a livery, didn't have a, a physical car present. The I think the only Renault that was on site was like Alonso's 2005 title winning one. <laughs> It's all right. If they had a launch right now, they wouldn't have a team principal or one of their drivers. Who's, uh, <laughs> so they're regressing. Poor old uh, Fernando Alonso, who we obviously haven't talked about on the podcast before with his, with his injury. But let's come back to you, Gary. Obviously, the main disappointment is there wasn't that much to look at with the car. Now, on the one hand, we always want to see lots of detail, etc. But also, how much do we just have to temper our expectations for all of them, given that they are carryover cars, and McLaren, the front of the car was always going to be the same because they couldn't really change it, and it was all about the engine installation. So, is it possible that we just think we're just expecting too much in this weird year in terms of what we can see? Yeah, I think you're probably right now, Ed. But it's you know it's, it's the first car out there, so you, you know it's a bit of a shock whenever you really do see that it's. I mean, okay, the engine's different, but we nobody ever lifts the engine cover off and lets us see underneath the bonnet. So all of that stuff is just hidden from 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 anybody, the fans, the viewers, everybody. Nobody sees underneath that bonnet. So we could have anything in there, you know. It could be a you know diesel, straight six diesel. Nobody would really know. So at the end of the day, uh, you know, 
if the cars are carryover, that's that's fine. That's okay. If it is carryover, you might as well show more of it. You might as well show more detail of it because it's basically it's a carryover. There's nothing. To, there's nothing really to hide. Um, so why not show more of it? Why not show a bit more detail to the to the viewers and the enthusiasts? Because that's that's what you can do. You know, there's nothing there that's going to be revolutionary because it is carryover stuff. So that's why I'm disappointed. There's a big opportunity there to to show a bit more, to show a bit more in depth. Not because it's new, but just because it's not new. You know, it's it's one of those sort of things that nobody loses because of that, and you get a lot of people on your side because you explain a lot of things to the viewers that they don't understand. So I think McLaren have missed a trick, to be honest. One of the things we could see is there is a little bit of difference in terms of the shape of the car further back. I'd concern that if you look at the the engine cover coming down onto the side pods, it's a little bit more Mercedes direction shot. There seems to be a little bit less lower down, a little bit more going on higher up. That's about as far as my uh, my eye goes. Yours is much better than mine, Gary. But what telltale signs did you see of that? Or is it you know just tiny, tiny little details that tell you very little about the, the cooling architecture? Well, it is the tiny details that work. You know, it's all those small bits that add up. You can see the undercut on the leading edge of the side pod sort of below the radiator duct, or as part of the radiator duct, it's a little bit, the undercut's bigger, the radiator duct inlet's a little bit smaller. It's a little bit um, sharper cornered, I suppose you might call it, on the outside, where the, the opening is and the bodywork curves around to the undercut. And the back end of the car is a little bit narrower. Um, you know, that is the package, basically. That's what you're trying to do all the time, is to sort of cling wrap these cars. Um, but underneath it, it has to do its job. You know, underneath it, the cooling has to be there. And you have to have an inlet for the radiator flow, and you have to have an exit. Some of this radiator flow goes into the airbox nowadays um, because it's deemed to be uh, a better place than having it all go in the side pods. Because what happens is these these radiators block off at a certain speed. So basically, you'll get decent flow air airflow through the radiators up to a certain speed, and then the radiator just can't cope with it anymore, and the, and the air starts to spill around the, the leading edge of the side pod. And that can hurt the back of the car quite dramatically at high speed. So, you know, a bit's been taken out of the radiator ducts and a bit more has been added to the airbox intake um, as the best compromise for consistency because the one thing you don't want is an aerodynamic change, you know, through speed, um, but because something is flowing in a different direction. So small detail changes. They've got a, a double T-wing on the back of it, um, Obviously, they're searching for a bit more downforce now that the underfloor isn't going to be as productive as before. But they're also probably looking a little bit at, you know, generating some of the downforce that they've lost and not worrying so much about the efficiency of the car because, you know, I think they're all looking at the fact that the Mercedes has probably got a little bit more power or a little bit more average power than the Renault had. So they can use that up and try to find grip. Yeah, and they've admitted that the installation is perhaps a little bit suboptimal compared to what they do if it's a clean sheet of paper. But James Key, technical director, did say he doesn't think the compromise is is that big when it comes to that. But mentioning the floor, obviously there are uh, there are these four little aero changes this year. The triangular cut, for want of a better word, with the floor tapering back towards the the rear corners, the brake duct, the lower part of the brake, brake ducts. You're restricted on your winglets for downforce production. The the cuts in the floor have gone and also the, the change in the diffuser strike. So there's a package of four little things to make a difference. We sort of got to look at the, the McLaren floor. The word you used to describe that design was primitive. So you think there's quite a bit more to come there, don't you? Well, it is basically a, a learning curve. Um, before the floor was quite complicated there, it had these louvers in it and some turning vanes. And what you're trying to do is to 
to catch the vortex that was coming off the back of the barge boards. Um, and if that's all rotating in the right direction, then that acts like a scavenging system for the sides of the floor. Um, and it means the underfloor works a lot better um, because you're sort of acting like a, you're, you're building like an, air, an aero skirt down the side of the car. That's all gone now. So the teams will have to learn about it again a little bit more as to what they can, what they need to do and what they can do. But as I say, what was on the McLaren today was very similar to what you'd have had on a car, you know, 20 years ago. It's just a, a blade. Um, you can't seal the area around tire contact packs the way you used to be able to. Uh, and that makes a big difference, especially when the change of ride height. Whenever you arrive at a corner, the rear of the car is quite low. Um, and when you hit the brake pedal, it rises up fairly quickly because A, you're losing speed, and B, you've got the weight transfer on the car. And that means the back of the car, that's the time when you want the rear of the car to be stable. And I think these regulations this year, for this year, the change of regulations for this year, will actually make the rear of the cars less stable. So it's going to be interesting to see who gets on top of it. But I don't. Th I think there's a, a big learning curve there, and it'll take a bit of track running before it really highlights itself as to how big a problem it could be. Well, obviously the um, the McLaren team wouldn't describe its own design, maybe in the term of uh, primitive, but they're basically admitted as much by I think you know James Key was was saying that or suggesting that the teams are probably going to turn up for Bahrain or the early races with immature designs with, with, in terms of the the aero side because um, it's, it is that learning game and the fact that there is only three days of pre-season testing as well means that there's going to be obviously less chance to correlate um, on track than, than ever before. So I, I think what we've seen from this um, sort of launch spec car <clears throat> is kind of like a probably a bit more of a middle ground than maybe we would we would we would have seen in previous years because I think there is sort of this need to you know have made quite a bit of progress by now so they've sort of got something on the car but it's going to evolve isn't it I'd be I'd, I'd be surprised for example if they race in Bahrain with that exact sort of design of uh, at the rear of the floor it, that it, that is actually one of the things that stood out to me most when the car was unveiled <clears throat> it's, it's 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 odd but it's almost impossible for your eye not to be drawn to the fact that there is just this solid block of floor. <laughs> We've got so used to seeing all those little s slots and um, yeah, they look like the blind in my living room, uh, the, the the 2020 floors. Um, and seeing that removed sort of uh, actually sort of crystallized it. We've talked it about it quite a lot over the last few months about what it's going to look like. And I know we saw obviously some sort of 2021 trial floors run at the end of last year for example so we got an idea and it's pretty easy to envision it because it was basically cutting off a small triangle wasn't it at the back but actually seeing it seeing the seeing it across at the at the very front of the the, the floor as well about the slots um yeah it, it it's a small change obviously a significant one i think just to go back to gary's point about sort of how little they showed of the car and everything it's quite telling that these tiny things on the car are sort of the big standout isn't it um, yeah, you've got these sort of small comparisons to the to last year's car. Obviously, it's the launch version. I um, I can't I can't speak off the top of my head for what McLaren ran in Abu Dhabi, for example. But you can see the difference in things like the um, the air intake and um, the sort of shaping at the rear of the car and, and all of this, like the Mercedes inspired stuff. But there wasn't anything on for, considering this has has the potential and internally it might well be the biggest change for 2021. That's not. To me, that's not a great start to launch season. If that if this is the car that's changed the most, and that's what we saw, 
then Gary's going to have to get his magnifying glass out for the other cars that we see. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's going to be one of those things. But you never know. That there is scope for people to surprise. Obviously, McLaren were also constrained, even though they had to make the most changes in terms of perhaps the numbers. Obviously, the tokens didn't apply to them. They had to make all their changes for the installation. That did limit them in terms of the front of the car was basically the same. And a lot of the aero stuff, the front wing was the same. The barge boards were very, very, very familiar from last year. As James Key said, they haven't finalised their their first race spec as yet. So he said he didn't really know where the floor was going to be. But I'm interested to ask you, Gary, when it comes to the floor, obviously when they made this package of four rule changes, it was basically lopping off 10% of downforce. Now you straight away will gain some of that back just through re-optimising around those rules. And it's about finding that that more downforce. I was interested that James Key suggested that come Melbourne, like Melbourne, I've got it wrong. Melbourne, of course, cancelled or postponed, I should say. <laughs> come Bahrain, it's uh, it's possible that some might be back to the same as they finished last season with. And he said that definitely during the year, people will get back to that level. Does that surprise you or would you expect that? Um, I would be surprised if they get back to the same level. But it's not quite just the out-and-out downforce. It's going to be the characteristics of the car that's going to be different as i say the, the the rear nervousness of the rear of the car under braking and corner entry when you're coming down from high speed i think will be the biggest challenge to the teams to get that solved again you know if you look at the floors that we had in the cars in 2020 with all the louvers and turning vanes and stuff the amount of development that went into it um and you know talk about this sort of two seconds a, a season uh race you know season on season development 10% as James is putting it. Um, if you can lob that bit off um, and, and the detail of it and all the work that went into it, all the wind tunnel hours, the man hours, the CFD analysis that went into it, if you can lob that off and say you'll find it all by the middle of the season or whatever, then you've just not been doing your, your job as far as the what you had was concerned. There will be teams that will lose more and teams that will lose less for sure, but the teams that will lose less just weren't doing it right with the complication of what they had. So I, I expect those teams will maybe make a little bit of ground, but definitely the front-running teams that had the things all working in the way that they should have worked, I think that they will uh, they will struggle a little bit to get it all back again. I don't see why, and the characteristics, as I say, more importantly, will definitely change on the car. It was interesting because I asked James Key about the impact on the characteristics, particularly under braking, because that was a strength last year for McLaren. And he did say, well, there's a number of things that changed in braking, yeah, it could be one braking stability could be one of those. He kind of glossed over it a little bit. So I don't know whether that means, yes, we know we've lost a bit there or we don't think that's going to be a major thing. But it's interesting that different teams, apparently in the technical meetings they have regularly, have found different little characteristic shifts. And obviously, that's one of the things they'll find from running the car, uh, shaking it down, doing two promotional days at Silverstone this week. Yeah, it, it does. You know, it's, it's down to how much aerodynamic shift you get. You can't, you know, if you're braking at 5G, you have weight transfer. The CAG of these cars is all very much the same. The the wheelbase is more or less the same nowadays. So you um you end up with weight transfer, mechanical weight transfer. And then on top of that, or against against that, you have the aerodynamic transfer. So it's about managing those two and getting it to work for you. And the mechanical weight to, weight transfer will still stay the same as what it was before. Um, but the aerodynamic transfer will be different. And that's the thing. I mean it's, it's really until you get to the circuit, you don't really know because you have a set of numbers that says this is my aero shift due to a certain ride height change. Um, but is that acceptable or isn't it? You know, it's the driver that sort of picks these things up and 
and highlights. And we, we saw at the beginning of the year last year that Red Bull, for example, you know, they had a problem with the, car, the rear of their car, but they had a very good front end on their car through the low-speed corners. McLaren on the opposite side, they had a very good rear end on their car, but the car had very little front grip in the low-speed corners. So, you know, there's a compromise between that aero shift that you have to make, and that's the thing that the teams will have to find because it will be different to what it was last year, and that's the thing they're going to have to work hard on getting that aero shift minimised or working for them as opposed to working against them. Given the um, given the extent of the, the the change for McLaren on this car is obviously primarily with the engine. Um, I know we've sort of touched on it, and Ed, you mentioned earlier about the the engine installation, but I thought it might be quite I thought it might be useful to sort of impart a little bit more of what James was telling us earlier about the um, sort of the the process they've gone through, how much has changed, because as we've as we've made pretty clear. Um, with this a lot of it is just stuff you can't see on the surface and as Gary was saying they could have anything under under that engine cover and, and what what would you know and you know it's not it's not to sort of get bogged down in the the details that people won't care about but I just I always find it interesting when you have technical directors talking about um, things like a you know, completely different electrical system um, totally uh, cooling systems that are totally different as well and you know, having architecture within the car that's actually quite different fundamentally, um, while also having um, homologated areas that they've got to stick to that are as unaffected as uh, as possible. So I think that's what sort of James was getting at when Ed, I think you mentioned sort of like just having this slightly suboptimal approach in terms of actually fully integrating this exactly as they'd have wanted. But it does actually sound like it does sound like it's come together really well. And I think from ev- everything that everything that we've heard and I do think there is something to read into this because more and more now F1 teams are conservative and they don't like letting on one way or the other whether it's good or bad so you get a lot of neutral statements but actually everything around the Mercedes engine in terms of the installation of it and so far what they've seen has sounded really positive I mean we've had the usual we've had the annual mercedes we've got issues with the power unit before testing story come out but james was telling us that they've done some full scale testing on the dyno and they ha- and it's been completely problem free so they're really happy with that they're really happy with how the two parties are working uh, together again obviously there's going to be some familiarity there from back in 2014 and and, and before um they they seem they seem very happy with with, with that so i i think it's there was always a risk with this launch season that what you heard was going to be almost as significant, if not more significant than what you could see, because there wasn't necessarily going to be a lot of visual changes. Um, I would say that the the impression I've got from Mercedes is that actually the integration of this engine has been might I'd even say probably less problematic than I thought it could have been. I was, I thought there might be sort of like the odd horror story creeping out of how they've had to like basically bend some piping in a completely impossible way but actually it all sounds pretty sensible and obviously they're going to have um whatever they've whatever they have had to sacrifice which obviously they won't let on to at the moment and we can't see trading the just the proven tried and tested best power unit on the grid it's going to be worth it isn't it even in the short term i just think that that net that net result is going to be a benefit so the mcl 35m adding that M at the end of the model <laughs> is just going to make that a better car overall than last year. Yeah, but the thing you've got to be careful of there, Scott, is you know, that should be a given. There's, there's a, you know, a big bunch of, of design engineers at McLaren, for example, and it's a very different group of people that would put in the, 
the Mercedes power unit into that car to the group of people that will be trying to optimize the characteristics of the rear underfloor with the, with the changes. The Mercedes have enough understanding of the package of their um, power unit, all its cooling requirements. Um, so basically putting it into a Formula One car should be the easiest thing in the world. You know, there's certain things you have to clear. There's pickup points, there's the compressor and there's a turbo and it's all done. It's all been done. It's all been proven by by Racing Point, by, by Williams and by Mercedes. And now McLaren are just latched onto the end of that. So they will receive a unit and they'll wrap some cling film around it and job done, you know. Stick four bolts in the front of it and you're, you're away. But it's still the other part that you have to make better. The regulation change is significant enough that for your car that was good last year, it could be bad this year. And that's the thing they've got to be careful of. And that's what I'm talking about. It's the thing that, you know, as we say, it's early days. It's a long time before the first race as far as Formula One's concerned. So there's plenty of room for development. But if you if you haven't got if you've got your last year's car there basically with a Mercedes engine in it, then why not have your your enthusiasts and viewers see a bit more detail of a Formula One car? Because you know you're going to change a lot of it anyway. So it's going to be putting a skip somewhere along the line before before we go to Bahrain. So there's an opportunity there to get a lot of people on your side by explaining what a Formula One car is a little bit more, you know. Have a good look at the front brake ducts. Have a good look at the barge boards. Just try to let people understand a little bit more. Because the bits underneath the engine cover, we never see that anyway. And as far as putting a Mercedes unit in instead of the Renault, it should be, you know, a simple thing to do. A lot of man hours, a lot of time, a lot of effort, but basically a fairly simple thing to do. So I guess the key question is, what should we expect McLaren to achieve this year? Third last year. Now, Zach Brown and Andreas Seidel were both... A little equivocal. They had ample chance to say, yeah, we want to finish third again. But they, they kind of avoided that and focused on the performance gap to the front with Mercedes. And I think that's a fair thing to do because that's your pure performance thing. That's why, Gary, you always look at performance first and foremost rather than order because you can be third and 2.5% off or 10th and 1% off. Well, actually, which one's really the better car? One's a relative, one's an absolute uh, measure, if you like, of performance. But I can see why they're a little bit careful because it's so congested in that in that group. You know, a couple of tenths of percent either way makes all the difference. So it's probably right they're not putting the third place millstone around their neck and saying, yeah, we've got to hold on to it because it could come down to a few points here or there, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, your competition is only what it is on a given day. I mean, we look at and we compare Lewis Hamilton and, and um, Michael Schumacher, you know, but if if they've been both been at their prime you know, in 2000, let's say, or 2002 or whatever it was, racing competitively against each other, one of them being the Ferrari, one of them being the Mercedes, or whatever it had been, it doesn't really matter. Then you could have compared it. But at the moment, I don't think you can. You can, you can bring Ayrton Senna into that equation as well. You know, on their given day, they they were, you know, they were the best. And it's the same racing now, you know. On a given day, like coming into this season, McLaren have to beat teams like um, Aston Martin as now, or Racing Point as it was. Um, Ferrari aren't going to be sleeping next year as well, or this year as well. So there's a lot of competition coming there. So it would be very easy for McLaren to actually score more points, but to end up, you know, fifth in the championship. Um, what, what, you know, did they do better? They did better because they scored more points relative to Mercedes, but they didn't do better because two other teams leapfrogged them. So, 
you know, it's, it's one of those sort of situations where you only have to beat the people around you on that given day, and that's what that's what racing is all about. So they can't come in and say, "Oh, we're going to we're going to hang on to third in the championship," because it's not down to them. It's down to how what the it's down to what the competition is going to be like on a given race weekend. I'm looking forward to seeing how this sort of multi-dimensional uh, way of judging McLaren's season unfolds, actually, because. Yeah, the points that you both made there, whether you judge them on the points they score, the place they finish, or their percentage of on, on lap time, on, on on qualifying, when when we have your qualifying analysis um, over the course of the season, Gary, and how they stack up there. You know, if they take a chunk of percentage out of Mercedes, but they drop a couple of places, that is what people like Andrea Sider were saying. Uh, you know, we take that, that would be a win. I think it's sort of a bit of a middle ground because it kind of depends on um, basically his point being that, you know, he'd, he'd take being fifth in the Constructors' Championship if they were a chunk closer to Mercedes. And I say yes to a point because if you're fifth but you've fallen behind an Alpine or an Alpha Tauri, I think you've taken a step backwards because those teams are in the same position. If you're fifth and you've fallen behind a Ferrari and, a, and an Aston Martin, that's an, that's an unusual situation compared to last year. So that's probably understandable because Ferrari were expecting to make a big step because they massively underperformed last year. And Aston Martin, the, what the health that they're in this year, like last year, isn't any guarantee of what they're going to be like next year because we know that they're running an updated version of an old Mercedes, which despite all of McLaren's prospects, uh, sorry, progress, McLaren isn't capable of building a better car than an upgraded year-old Mercedes at the moment. It's just that little bit behind because that's how good the 2019 Merc was. So it's quite, it's not, I'm not saying it's okay to be beaten by other teams, but if you're going to get beaten by Ferrari and Aston, you're going to be beaten by two teams with unusual circumstances in 2019, 20 and 21 if McLaren is able to prove that it's still on this upward trajectory in terms of its own performance, that bodes very well going into a new rule cycle in 2022 because it just reaffirms their own progress. So this, it's just fascinating. I, I really don't think that judging their season is as binary as it might be in a in a sort of normal year, shall we say. Like last year, for example, obviously ignoring Ferrari being out of the picture, McLaren just emphatically did the best job of any team in the midfield, even even though Racing Point was running the pink Merc. It's not quite as simple as that this year because you've got Ferrari coming back and it's the second year of, well, it's going to be the green Mercedes this year, isn't it? Um, so it's just it's just really interesting. I see no reason why McLaren shouldn't be at least fifth in the Constructors' Championship and they should probably be aiming to beat Aston Martin and sort of nipping at Ferrari's heels, depending on obviously the progress that that team's made. But it's going to... It has to be a successful season, doesn't it? Otherwise, it does undermine the the progress that has been made in the last couple of seasons. Well, the bottom line is that aerodynamics are still your key performance differentiator. And if you want to prove you're making progress, you've got to make progress relative to the front. That's that's the absolute key. Because if you're not, it means you don't understand something. And McLaren has been understanding more and improving. But it's kind of when you hit that glass ceiling, isn't it? When your understanding runs out. They've got to make sure their understanding is continuing to evolve so they're always kind of just within what they what they know to be able to to make gains. But finally, Gary, they are doing both of their promotional days this week, Tuesday and Thursday at Silverstone. So that's two 100-kilometer runs. Ricardo and Norris will both be driving. How valuable do you think that is that not far off a month ahead of testing, a few days less before Bahrain testing gets underway, how important is it that they actually get that, that mileage in, show that the engine 
is working, that they understand it, get Daniel Ricciardo assimilated better into the team so that they're ready to hit the ground running. Would you, if you were technical director, think, yeah, this is a success to be able to run the car, bank uh, that all you can do is those two promotional days before testing. You'd be pretty happy if you do that. And then if you do those miles and the car doesn't catch fire as soon as you drive down the, uh, the pit lane the first time. Well, it's happened before. I've <laughs> caught fire. Even my cars have caught fire. But um, yeah, it's it's very important because in one way or another, you know, as long as you get a decent run, a, decent, a little bit of decent weather, and I'm not sure you'll get that at Silverstone the way the weather is at the moment, but there might be a chance that you can get in five laps or something in decent weather. It doesn't have to be stone dry. Intermediates would do. But you want to be able to drive hard enough to sort of get the general characteristics of the car because then you can compare it to what you think you've got and you can also you know do some work on the simulator to try to simulate what you've got and see how you get out of it because that's a great the great thing about a simulation tool you know driver in the loop simulation is the fact that you can artificially create center of pressure shifts and see if that makes the car better or worse so you're you know you're able to sort of explore into the dark before you sort of set off your development path but you do need some track data to make sure that the, the correlation between what you think it should do and what it is doing is working that can happen in, in your two your two filming days as such. Yes, the tires are a little bit different, but they're a little bit different. All four of them are a little bit different. And we do have different compounds anyway. It's five different compounds of slick. So somewhere in there, that tire that's on the car will have a reasonably decent characteristic to, to what the real tire will be like. Might not be as fast, might even be faster, who knows. But um, it will give you a reasonable idea as to the correlation between what you think you should be getting and what the car is doing. And then you can go back to the simulator and readdress your your error maps and try to create an error map that makes the car better. And, you know, it's tough then to go in the wind tunnel and, and get those characteristics, but that's what it's all about. Nobody said it'd be easy. So you, you have to, but you have to find the right direction to go in first. And those, those couple of days running will do a lot for them. And as you say, it's a new engine for them, how they run that engine. You know how you how you deploy the power, how you harvest it. All that stuff needs to be learned because it is different from what the Renault was like. Um, so, a lot of work to do. You won't get that all done in two days of um, fifty kilometers a day, but you will get you know some of it done. Um, it's, it's two sort of significant elements that make this probably a bit more valuable than the sort of average team would get uh, would 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 find a filming day because. As Gary was saying, there first is the it's the engine. Um, it's just making sure that all the installation is sort of working out as planned. It's not the same as like, you know, Haas for example, which is facing various. I think it's a combination of Brexit and COVID related um, travel angst. Um, but they can't fire up their uh, they they won't fire up their twenty one car until basically the day before preseason testing starts in Bahrain because they can't get um, Italian personnel over um, to, to to do it in the factory in the UK. Um, so imagine if they were the ones that had a new engine uh, that had been installed and everything moved around that, that would be a, that would be a problem. Obviously McLaren is a long, long way from having to worry about that. So that's, that's a very good thing. Um, and the other thing is obviously it's not just a new engine that they're installing into the car. It's a new driver as well. So for, for, for Ricardo, it's just an extra, it's just a head start before testing, isn't it? We saw in the, um, um, video that they did on his seat fit that he was complaining about his slightly too wide hips and he was telling us earlier that is actually a problem he sort of has um has had before his hips tend to be the sort of limiting factor in terms of seat comfort so he's 
just basically saying, like, just try to make me as comfortable as possible. Obviously, McLaren will have taken that on board, adjusted it. He says he's happy. But it's little things like, okay, if there does need to be a small uh, seat adjustment before testing, it's just done way in advance. They don't have to worry about that. Um, And it's also a a nice little 100-kilometre bonus for him uh, getting used to the McLaren steering wheel and their little processes trackside, which is just it just chips away a little bit more. And if that if that buys him back half an hour of running uh, uh, over a day and a half of testing, because obviously testing so so reduced, it's just an extra it's just an extra benefit, isn't it? It's just it's all part of this plan that McLaren has to make sure that when um, Ricardo turns up for the Bahrain Grand Prix, he feel it's not it doesn't feel like his first Grand Prix for the team and it's just marginal gains isn't it it's not anything that's going to make or break your season but it's just going to add up to a slightly smoother start if you uh if you speak to him again scott just tell him to make sure he takes his wallet out of his back pocket it'll fit the, <laughs> it'll fit the seat a lot better <laughs> he did say he did say that he's um he joked to the he joked to the team that that please just make me comfortable in the car and if it makes it attempt slower aerodynamically i'll just drive a bit faster around the track <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as I say, all these all these drivers' positions—that's all based around head height and you know trying to get the minimal um, disturbance on the airbox and for the rear wing and stuff. But you know, you've got to see, you've got to be able to see the curbs and place the car, and and that's so important for the driver. You know, you might gain a couple of hundredths of a second by having the driver's head in the right place, but you can very quickly gain a tenth and maybe even two tenths if they look and see the corner and place the car on the curb. It was the most annoying driver you had to fit into one of your F1 cars, Gary. Beyond yourself, I should say, because you did you did fit into one of them a few times to drive them. Anybody above five foot five. Eddie Irvine was quite difficult because he had a long body and short legs. He wasn't tall, but he had a long body and short legs. And you know, you you do a lot of stuff in the cockpit to fit a normal driver, but he needed his bum quite a lot further forward just to get his head down. So he was probably one of the most difficult. We've had we had tall drivers and we had small drivers. But they're not as difficult as somebody abnormal like uh, like Eddie, whose who's backside is basically too low to the ground. <laughs> Good for the centre of gravity, but uh, but not great for fitting in a racing car. We'll have to find out if uh, any of the current F1 grid are considered to be abnormal in terms of their, their proportions, creating a challenge. But uh, as you say, the driver's always a nuisance. The car designer would much rather they didn't have to accommodate the biological bit in the middle of the car. That would make life much easier, wouldn't it? <laughs> much, much easier. Yeah, get rid of that. and get, Let's make it radio-controlled, you know? We're getting there now anyway, aren't we, with all this virtual driving stuff. So let's just get rid of the driver. It's not necessary anymore. Exactly. Robo Race is the future. Well, thanks very much, Gary and Scott. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. There's a huge amount to read there, including Gary's verdict on the McLaren and loads of comments from what the team personnel and the drivers have said at McLaren. And of course, do also head to our YouTube channel as there's a video up there about the car, hopefully by the time you listen to this. And also, if you enjoy your podcast, check out Bring Back V10s. Our 1997 Lola F1 project is the current episode, which is a very, very interesting story of, uh, unfortunately, abject failure. So thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with more F1 launches. Probably the next one will be AlphaTauri on Friday, although you never know what might happen in between to trigger a podcast. So join us next time.